Is that the new iPhone? Yeah, got it on T-Mobile. Fastest iPhone deserves America's fastest LTE network. Introducing the amazing iPhone 8. It's the best iPhone yet, now on America's best unlimited network. For a limited time, save up to $300 on the amazing iPhone 8 after 24 monthly bill credits. And now join T-Mobile's iPhone upgrade program for free. Eligible trade-in and finance agreement required. If you cancel service, you may lose promo credits. Contact us for details. Video at 480p. Small fraction of users over 50 gigs per month may have reduced speed. See store for details. You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Meddahl, reminding you, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB, like us on Facebook, or most importantly, rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. I am here today to talk about the orange, unpredictable mess that isn't destroying America, and that's basketball. And here to join me to do it is Michelle Smith, a wonderful basketball writer. i couldn't possibly list all your credits, uh, but Michelle, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it. It's the best time of year, isn't it? It really, really is. place I'd love to start is the general strength of the Pac-12. Now, there's sort of this modern origin myth, and it has a great degree of truth to it, about Mike Neighbors coming to the conference when he was an assistant at Washington and talking about the need to improve the strength of schedule, and that absolutely made a difference with the RPI. But I could schedule lots of strong out-of-conference teams to play against, uh, but I am very slow, have no first step, and would lose to all of them. So what I wonder from you is what you think it is, beyond just that strength of schedule, that has made the Pac-12 so tough this year? Well, and, you know, and we know, you know, that there was more, it was more than about strength of schedule with strengthening our RPI. It was about scheduling a balance of games. I mean, if you'll even look back before that time, there were programs, Stanford used to run some incredibly, incredibly difficult schedules. They would run a big gauntlet. Washington State had always been, you know, a team that would schedule really tough. Arizona State, there were, um, you know, there were teams, so strength of schedule was part of it, but another part of it was finding a balance between strengthening your schedule with great games against power conference teams and then balancing them against teams, maybe strong mid-major teams, but games that you thought you could win because winning also counts in your RPI, right? Right, You build RPI by having success. So I think it was that balance of let's get out there and play people and let's have success and strengthen the RPI. Now, RPI is a number, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't tell us how you get five teams in the Sweet 16 a few years after you've done this. I mean, but I think that recruiting has had a lot to do with that, obviously. I think great coaching. But I think that the bottom line, my thought, is about resources. And I give tremendous credit to the Pac-12 network, not because having games on a regional cable network is the be-all, the end-all, but it gave kids in California and Arizona and Washington a good reason to stay home. It gave them a reason to know their family and friends would get to see them on TV a bunch, that they would get exposure. Has anybody gotten more exposure this year than Kelsey Plum? Right. No. So, you know, I mean, I think the Pac-12 Network brought resources into women's basketball programs across the Pac-12. People who weren't willing, schools that weren't willing to spend a ton of money on women's basketball suddenly had to put resources in it because it was going to be on TV 100 games a year for in totality. Um, you were going to have to hire a good coach. You were going to have to spend money on your women's basketball program because people were going to see it. Right. So 
think that the network and the change, I mean, if you start to measure the tra trajectory of the Pac-12, it starts to come not long after the network really got settled and players had an opportunity for exposure, universities had an opportunity at resources, and people were just going to get seen. That's a great point. And, you know, it's interesting. Even I, I was talking to Destiny Slocum about this earlier this year, and she was talking, you know, an, an Idaho girl, of course, and was looking at moving east and going to Maryland, and that's what she ended up doing uh, after originally looking at Washington. But she talked about the fact that the growth of the Pac-12 and the amount that people were seeing the Pac-12 was making a difference and probably would have altered, if not altered her ultimate destination, her recruitment thinking. So I think that there's an excellent point that you make about that. It also, obviously in 2017, would be a wonderful thing if the Pac-12 could strike a deal with DirecTV. You would think that that might take things to another level. Have you seen any indication that uh, that is a, something that is holding the conference back, or do you think that would just supercharge it? Well, I mean, I obviously think it's been a priority conversation for Larry Scott and for the conference for a long time. Every year when we go to Seattle with Pac-12 or every big Pac-12 event, whether it's the Rose Bowl or whatever, Larry Scott makes himself available, and there's never a time when somebody doesn't ask him about the status of DirecTV. But, you know, the media world is changing quickly. And so DirecTV in and of itself, I think, is not necessarily the goal anymore because you've got AT&T, you know, is going to swoops up DirecTV. And then, you know, DirecTV is not the one that you've got to make a deal with anymore. Like, things change. Yeah. And things are changing really quickly. And so I think it, there's a potential there for the Pac-12 to expand its reach. I know that the schools want it. I would imagine Larry Scott wants and I can't imagine that he would have thought four or five years into running this network that he wasn't going to have a major carrier on board. They want it, but clearly they're not able to get it done. I have to say personally, I was a direct TV customer, and when the network launched, because of what I do and the amount of exposure I wanted to Pac-12 Sports, I made a switch to cable, no. and I went with a carrier that is carrying the Pac-12 network. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's not an unimpactful decision but I don't see any real movement beyond the fact that the media world is shifting a little and there may be some openings coming. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And the fact is DirecTV may end up finding itself because of cord cutters in the same situation Blockbuster Video did once upon a time. So it will be fascinating to see. Something I noticed and I thought was interesting was despite the RPI, despite the strength of schedule, despite everything that the Pac-12 had done this year, we still managed to see Oregon end up with a 10 seed. Now, there's two parts to this. One part is Oregon ending up with the 10, which seemed very strange to me in and of itself, and having seen them in person and watched them a bunch this year, they certainly didn't look like a 10 seed to me. And, and to be clear, I said that prior to their move to the Sweet 16, you know, in the win over Duke. But also, the decision to have them as a 10 and Cal as a 9, uh, I spoke to the committee chair on the night that the brackets were released. She didn't really have an answer for it. Have you heard anything about why that happened? Do you have any thoughts about either that specifically or in general Oregon as a 10? It makes no sense. I mean, I think it doesn't, it was one of those decisions the committee made this year that I think, I mean, I think that the talk was that in the last few years, the committee, you could kind of nod your head and say, yeah, I think that they did, you know, I, by and large, they did the right thing with the bracket. And there were some head scratchers this year. And that was one of them for me. Oregon had a better, non, a better conference record than Cal. Um, 
you know, they had a better run through the Pac-12 tournament than Cal. Cal had not had a good stretch at the end of the season. Like, I mean, it literally made no sense unless, I guess, you take into account procedural bumps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and obviously the committee has the right to do that. But on its face, it didn't make any sense, and there weren't any really good answers for it. I mean, to me, Oregon, as a 10, to have to go out and forget Duke, which was tough enough to win at Duke as a second-round game, but that Temple team was extremely impressive, and Fionda Fitzgerald, one of the most uh, efficient point guards in the country. So to have to go out and win that as your first-round game after the season they had struck me as very strange. But let's talk about Cal as one of the two rarities, a team that did not make it to the Sweet 16, obviously had a nice big first-round win over LSU, uh, terrifically impressive, especially late. Do you think this Cal team is close to reaching its potential? It seems like, you know, with Christina Igwe as just a sophomore, that there are big, big things ahead for Lindsay Gottlieb, and I'm not just referring to the upcoming birth of her child. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I I was a little puzzled by them this year because I thought big things were ahead this year mm-hmm. with Courtney Range and Michaela Cowling and Young Guards and I thought they would be better than they were and I was a little bit puzzled as to what happened because not unlike last year though not to the same degree they just they got off to a really strong start they had a great record they were in the rankings they were playing with confidence they got to the conference and they started to struggle immediately and I don't know what that's about. Is that about focusing too much on getting the ball to Christina Nigue and de-emphasizing the contributions of other people to the point where it's all Christine all the time? You have this player of immense talent, but you cannot win with one player. Right. I'm not questioning Lindsay Gottlieb. I'm just saying I think she's probably as puzzled as the rest of us were. But the fact, you know, I was surprised, and I'm, I know Cal was surprised in a bit, to get, see them get into the tournament. I thought the Pac-12 deserved seven teams. I thought the conference was that good. But I was surprised. And I think in another year, with a stronger bubble, they wouldn't have gotten in. So when you think about Cal, when they've had their best success, they have elite backcourt players, They, you know, particularly at the point. Uh, the you know a tremendous amount of depth. Do you think that is what miss, is what's missing from Cal right now? Well, I mean, obviously, Ish Thomas had some really nice games um, for them late, and you know, she did some good things for them. Uh, but I do think there's, but there's nobody in the backcourt who feels like that team leader, like a Brittany Boyd or an Alexis Gray Lawson to go back, right? I mean, there's not that, you know, when you talk about inside outside game, Cal's always sort of been able to have that. But it wasn't always just about production. It was about your two best players, your two hardest workers, your two team leaders are, you know, this guard and that post. And they need, you know, there needs to be somebody who's going to step into that Brittany Boyd space and be that person who's going to pull them together on the floor and who's going to pull them through a rough stretch or a time when they're starting to give up a lead or whatever. And I don't see that. I don't see that happening. I didn't see it happen this year. How about that? That that makes sense to me. And I, I would just reiterate, for me, it highlights the import of Brittany Boyd, who is someone who was so vital, obviously, at Cal and has been tremendously vital to the New York Liberty. And they play vastly better when Brittany Boyd is healthy and on the court for them. So I think we're really getting a sense of just how great she is, perhaps uh, by omission in a couple of instances. Uh, 
moving on to another team that had some omissions during the year, that's Arizona State. Ended up with an eight seed, but obviously the way in which they played not only against Michigan State uh, and a very talented roster led by Tori Jankoska, but to go and take South Carolina down to the final minute, it, it certainly seems like the healthy Arizona State had it been intact for the full season, would not have been an eight seed. First of all, do you think even so they were underseeded? And second of all, what what do you make of what ended up being a really interesting but sort of diverse season? Well, maybe they were underseeded a tad. Um, you know, they didn't really have a signature win in the Pac-12. You know, they had yeah. they played great, but I was really impressed with the way they played in the tournament because I think Kelsey Moose got reintegrated. She got back sort of in the rhythm. They did what they do well. I mean, obviously, Arizona State, you know, defends so well. They've not always been a great scoring team. I think the injuries sort of kind of, you know, it sort of tamps down their offense when they get injured because defensively, they do think schematically they do what they do, but I think the injuries impact offensively more than defensively. No question. So, you know, I could I could have seen Arizona State as a six or a seven seed. That being said, I was super impressed with the way that they played. And, you know, and I think, you know, I mean, I think that there are a lot of pieces there, although she's got to replace some good players inside, obviously. It'll be fascinating to see what she does on the offensive side of the ball. Like you said, the defense seems to be just consistent year in and year out. And how much of that is her approach, I think, is very telling because it's uh, independent of the personnel that she has. But I, I cannot wait to see how she manages to build next season. Uh, let's talk about the teams from the Pac-12 that did make the Sweet 16, which is basically everyone. Uh, we'll try to get to each one in turn. Uh, I want to start with UCLA, and uh, Corey Close uh, at the start of this year told me that uh, the pyramid of success that she has in her office, uh, pioneered by John Wooden, had the first two uh, steps lit up. I'm curious whether you think that a win over UConn this weekend would be enough to light up that third step? Oh, gosh, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Does it light I up mean, the whole pyramid? You know, I, like UCLA, I like UCLA right now very much. I think they had a little, they get a bit of a rough patch in the middle of Pac-12, and then they came out of it great. Um, I like, I love Jordan Canada, Monique Billings, I I think they have some interesting pieces. I think the key to whatever success UCLA has against UConn is going to be with Carrie Corver and her ability to hit threes. She has to score. They absolutely have to score to stay in that game with UConn. Anybody who wants to stay in the game at UConn with UConn this time of year has to put up points. It cannot be a defensive battle. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And, and they will figure out how to score, and you have to score with them. And I think Carrie Corver is absolutely the linchpin to that for UCLA because she has to hit. She has to keep them in the game with big threes. It, it is vital. And, you know, what's interesting about UCLA, and you talked about how well they're playing, they're sort of a forgotten team right now in that Bridgeport regional. You, you look at Maryland, and I, I've, I've written about Maryland. I, I think they are justifiably getting a ton of attention as a potential threat to UConn in the Elite Eight. And Oregon, obviously, as a 10, is someone that uh, a lot of people are talking about. And UConn is a team that's gotten a fair amount of press as well <laughs> through the <laughs> through the season. Yeah. But UCLA went out. They were a four seed, played extremely well this year. They not only beat Boise State, but they absolutely crushed that Texas a and team. 
uh, a very good team, uh, w you know, with Knox at the point guard. And that tells me that you're looking at a team that could really give UConn a better game than people think. I, you talked about Jordan Canada, and the, the big takeaway for me, when you look at assist percentage, which is an imperfect but a helpful way, uh, in my opinion, of noting who are the most effective point guards simply at finding their teammates. And of the top 20 in assist percentage, only three had a turnover percentage below 15%. Uh, Jordan Canada, Fionda Fitzgerald of Temple, and Alexis Peterson of Syracuse. And having Canada be able to do that, be able to limit turnovers while making this happen, I think is going to be so vital to to UCLA giving them a game. I think the reason why Maryland is such a tough matchup for UConn through the years is rebounding, which limits the number of possessions UConn has, and efficiency in terms of shooting, which limits the number of possessions that UConn has. And that's what Jordan Canada can do for UCLA. Do you think ultimately that UCLA can keep it close? What What is a win for UCLA in your mind in this game? I do, I, you know, I think that, you know, I think that UCLA has to do what any team has to do against UConn, right, which is you got to play 40. You can't let them go on a huge run. You know, you can't let them go 16-2 on you at the end of the half because mm -hmm. if you're staring at a 15-point deficit at halftime, it's a mountain. It's not a hill, right? Right. Um, it's got to But I think UCLA can do those things. I mean, I think if they get shots and they turn them over, you know, and, and they get out of passing lanes and they turn them over, I mean, I think they have a shot at this game, interestingly. In fact, I don't know. Weirdly, it's just a five. I think UCLA has as good a shot as I think UConn would have against teams in the next round, and I include Maryland in that. Not because I think less of Maryland, but, you know, they've already, you know, they know each other well. And, you know, when you're playing against the Geno team that, you know, that you played a few times, I usually like his chances. Yeah. yeah so, you know, I mean, UCLA's not a familiar opponent for them, and they're going to have to sort of deal with, Maybe not some things they haven't seen before, but you know UCLA is not familiar, and so and I like that as far as UCLA's chances in the matchup as well. Very interesting game, I think. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Uh, you spoke about obviously Maryland also going up against Oregon. At a certain point in the season, you throw out the seedings, but w what are your thoughts about that matchup? It would seem to me that. Oregon has answers for a lot of the things that Maryland does best, whether it's talking about the interior play, whether you're talking about the ability to hit threes. It seems like Maryland's going to have to answer for a lot of things that Oregon does as well. I agree. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, uh, you know, Oregon played well in the Pac-12 tournament. You went, oh, you know, like, I mean, not that we didn't think that they were good or that they were getting better, but a team with three freshmen on the floor, you go, all right, it's you know, maybe it's not their time or they're not marinated yet. And then they came out and they played so well, and UNESCO played so incredibly well and probably made herself a bit of a national name at that point during the Pac-12 tournament. And now this, and I just think, you know, I think anybody that underestimates Oregon because of the number next to their seed is going to do so at their peril and already has. Yeah. So I like this game, too. I think that they're going to be two really interesting games in Bridgeport. What I think is interesting is – with Maryland and the underseeding and the chip on their shoulder and, you know, they have something to prove. Oregon doesn't have any of that. Oregon doesn't have expectations. Oregon doesn't have something to prove. Oregon doesn't need to feel like it's been disrespected. Oregon can play with total freedom that however it goes, it goes. 
Not that they don't want to win, but there's just nothing else there. Right. And I just wonder if that's going to play into this game at all, this whole Maryland trying to prove that it could get there, Maryland trying to prove that it could get to Sweet 16. I mean, I think it was interesting, you know, those first reactions of teams that end up in Connecticut's bracket, and I think Maryland was a little guilty of this on Selection Day. You know, they were not thrilled about the number three seed, and they were not thrilled about being Connecticut's bracket. Well, to be honest, You've already spotted Connecticut 10 points, but that's how you feel about being in their bracket. To me. That's, that's con that, is, that is conceding something to Connecticut by saying we didn't really want to be in their bracket. I, I thought it was interesting, too, though. I, I understand that point of view, but talking to Brenda Fries about it last week, she kind of turned it on its head. She talked about the fact that this was a sign of disrespect from the committee toward UConn, you know, the four-time defending champions, putting such, an, such a terrific three-seed like Maryland in their bracket. And I, I'm paraphrasing her, but I believe she said, if I were them, I wouldn't want to play us either. So I, it's, it's some interesting psychological games going on that you can imagine if they both advance in the next round, we'll be hearing quite a lot about in the Sunday uh, uh, ahead, of, uh, ahead of the game. I agree, I agree, and Brenda's obviously, and Brenda, you know, Brenda doesn't shy away from saying something that might rattle a cage or two through right. the years, and that's great because it makes, certainly keeps things interesting for us. But, you know, all I would say is this is also not, a Connecticut team with three first-round WNBA draft picks, the first three picks in the WNBA draft, right? This is a younger team that has played some close games this year that is probably, you know, that has been incredibly successful and added to the wing streak and all of that. But I think that while not going so far as to say they look beatable, they look more, they look closer to the field than Connecticut teams of the past couple of years. Well, let, let me ask you this, because I, I, your point is well taken about those three who aren't there. It does seem to me that pretty clearly there are, at minimum, four future WNBA first-round draft picks on that team right now. Do you not see sure. the big four that no, they no, have? No, as, I don't know. I don't, I don't see. I, I'm, not, I'm not disputing that at all. Okay. I'm saying this year, this team, you know, this is not, you know, this is not quite this is not quite the team of last year or the team of two years ago, which is not to say anything, you know, ill about Connecticut. My God, sure. those standards are so high. Right. But, you know, I, but I think that this is a team that is closer to the rest of the field than the teams that they've put out in the last couple of years. I, I, I wouldn't argue. I, I wouldn't argue that principally because an issue of depth, right? It's just a question of if something happens to one of the big four, either an injury or somebody not playing as well as they normally can. There isn't an obvious answer uh, in the way that last year you had each of these four, along with the top three in the WNBA draft. So it's a very different group and. I guess the other point, as far as it goes with UConn, is when you look at uh, Azure Stevens coming in, when you look at the uh, tr tremendous recruiting class they have as well, this may be the best time to get UConn in <laughs> the foreseeable yeah. future as well. You know, they, this, may, this tournament may be the only thing that stands between us and UConn 200. Well, and, you know, and maybe, and who knows, maybe it's just a little bit of wishful thinking on all of our parts that the ending might actually be a little in doubt, right? I mean, right. you know, we've I've been to the last ten final fours, and the last five of them have all ended with the same ending, right? True. You know, it's at the end, and you're watching Gino climb a ladder and cut down the nets, and, you know, and there's a celebration, and, you know, it's just, 
I think that, you know, I'm not going to suggest it gets boring. I would never suggest it's bad for women's basketball because I don't think it is. Nope. But I would suggest that maybe there's a little bit of a glimmer here that that the ending might be in a little bit more of doubt than it's been the last few years. Well, and I would say something even further about it. It's such a great point. It's really important to understand the difference. I'm not saying that you don't. I'm saying, but to many who are critical of women's basketball, the difference between the fact that UConn has consistently won this and that it was a, a done deal before UConn even took the floor. And that's a, a dramatic and significant difference. And anyone who is absolutely certain that UConn is going to win the national title isn't paying attention to the tremendous amount of talent there is at the top of this game and some teams who could potentially challenge them. And you, like you said, need to go back no further than a number of games this year. Look, Florida State, who was not a one seed and not a two seed, they're a three seed in this tournament. Florida State lost them by two points. Maryland was with them to the final minute this year and last year. And Maryland's a three seed in their own bracket. So I, I think that's an important distinction. I'm really glad you made it. Uh, and, and so let's talk about along the lines of those final four teams from last year. Another one out of the Pac-12, the three seed uh, in Oklahoma City, and uh, that's the Washington Huskies. Yes, Kelsey Plum is on that team. Yes, we've heard a great deal about her. I want to ask you, and we talked about this a little bit the last time, Chantel Osahor who does, to my eyes, everything, absolutely everything yeah. you can ask out of a player. What have you come to believe about her capabilities of, A, helping lead her team to a Final Four, again, and B, her chances of not just playing but excelling at the WNBA level? Well, I think I'll take the first question. I think that I... And by my eyes, I think Washington could get back to the Final Four. Mm -hmm. I think that they've got the right stuff. I think they've got Osahor playing at what Mike Neighbors calls video game numbers, right? Yeah. So, you know, the way on the boards, I mean, her hands, the passing, the three-point shot, you know, I mean, she just, she stretches people out. She dominates inside. There's, I like a, there's a lot to like about Washington. Natalie Romeo, Erin McDonald, I mean, they've got pieces. Katie Collier setting screens and doing the hard work, and inside and you know like I like this Washington team very much and I think that they could absolutely get back and I think it would be great for the final four to have Kelsey Plum playing in it after the season and the record that I mean she's done with all the records so what's left go back <laughs> right. to the final four and, and you know and and, and perhaps like more even further this time I I, I, I know do. I like Washington a lot yes yeah you you and me both and and I they're my pick actually out of Oklahoma City and uh, when you look at Plum's opportunity to go back and rewrite her national semifinal experience, I can uh, be sure that that is on Kelsey Plum's mind going forward. So it would be fascinating to see. Like you said, Washington has so many shooters, and the amount of space in that creates for Plum to get inside and for Osahor to do all the things she does. To me, her passing alone is uh, worth the price of admission to go see Washington play. Going up against that Mississippi State team uh, that has obviously had a terrific year and beat a terrific DePaul team in the second round. So obviously not slumping so much, but uh, given the troubles that Victoria Vivians has had putting the ball in the basket late in the year, be very interested to see. I think that is a fascinating regional between them and that, that Baylor-Louisville uh, game I'm really excited about. Uh, moving across over to Lexington, though, uh, Stanford and Texas – Tell me why you think Stanford ultimately 
did as well as they did. When you looked at them on paper, you know, obviously Erica McCall uh, as a tremendous resume, but you wouldn't necessarily see them as a team that should be at the top of the Pac-12. They are a sum of their parts team, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. This is not, you know, there are not a lot of there are not a lot of big names on this team. Um, I think Alana Smith's emergence is really nice for Stanford. I mean, I think she's she finishes well. She's got a very versatile game. So the Australian, I think she's come along great for them. Brittany McPhee can be a little bit up and down, but when she's up, she's a tough, you know, she'll drive, she'll shoot, she's got, she's an energy player. I mean, this is obviously not a star-laden Stanford team, but I think what they do well, they do well together. I think they're, su- I think they're really mentally tough. If you look at the games where they've gotten behind and then they do what they need to do, that Oregon State win in the Pac-12 championship was not pretty, but it was compelling as heck to watch them lock them down. I mean, they just said, nope, you're not getting anything easy. Nothing. And they did, and they executed it. I mean, they play scouting reports. They know what they're doing on the defensive end. They run half-court offense. I mean, there are a lot of teams out there that can put up a lot of points on you if they can get out and run. Stanford will get out and run with you, and that's fine, but they don't have to because they can execute in the half-court and score on you there as well. Yeah, it's so true. That's a big deal. It's a very big deal, and it's what allowed them, like you said, to beat an Oregon State team. Both of them have the less traditional profile, which you think of as sort of the wide-open, West Coast, more offensive-oriented type of team. Well, and I would say, I mean, I'm actually a firm believer in the late in the NCAA tournament that defense won't win you games anymore, that you have to score. That's just something I feel like I've watched through the years, that it, this ends up being teams who can score end up, Advance, once you get past a certain point in the tournament, if you can't score, you're going home. And I think Stanford has a, a lot of different ways to score, and it can be different people on different nights. And I think that's part of the reason that we're here. It can be Alana Smith and Brittany McPhee one night. It can be, you know, it can be Erica McCall and Carly Samuelson another night. Right. It could be, you know, any combination of those two, but they have a lot of ways that they can score on you. Washington has a lot of ways they can score on you. My question, if we're going to hop over to Oregon State while we were talking about that matchup, my biggest question about Oregon State at this point is, do they have enough ways they can score on you to get back to the Final Four? Right. I don't know. Right. I, so much of that's going to come down to, does Florida State have a way of slowing down Sydney Weiss? Does South Carolina and or Quinnipiac, let's just be clear, have an opportunity, a way to slow down Sydney Weiss and force them uh, to go to some of their freshmen? That's a good question. Do, do you you sound like you don't think so? I don't know if I don't know if this Oregon State team is a Final Four team, and that's not to take away anything from what they've done this year. Because honestly, the team that finished with the Pac-12 regular season championship was a damn good team. Mm-hmm. Because that was a rough conference to work their way through. They won a huge game at Stanford in over in double overtime at Maple. Their first time they'd ever won at Maple. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did some really really hard things this year. Um, but I see Weiss's production offensively starting to drop off a little bit, and I'm concerned about that. Yeah. I don't know if that's fatigue and they've just asked her to do too much for too long. Um, you know, I mean, Marie Gulich has done great things for them. They've had the young players, you know, Gabby Hanson, but Gabby Hanson's not counted on to be a scorer for them. That's not her role for them. 
I just am concerned that Oregon State right now doesn't have enough offensive firepower to get back. It, it's a concern that makes a lot of sense, and quite frankly, it was a concern I, I imagine you shared with me prior to the season beginning. So just the fact that Scott Ruler got them to that regular season title. And like you said, that double OT game, to my mind, might have been the game of the year in the sport, quite frankly. That alone is a really impressive thing after the losses that they sustained. Uh, in terms of Stanford as well, I think that's a really important point that you made that they are uh, uh, some greater than their individual parts is a testament to, I, I don't remember who their coach is, some up-and-comer, uh, but I think that yeah. there's, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's well, probably a pretty good reason for that. Geez, and I don't think, I, I don't think Tara's trying to say that this is a national championship caliber team, but hmm. she has compared this team to her 92 team, which she always calls her bucket of bolts team. Right. And she's had teams like this from time to time where they are some of their parts team, that they do things well. They do, they run, you know, they run the half-court offense well. They play great defense. They play together. And in this case, I've watched this team get behind a whole lot of times this year. Sometimes, you know, and you go, why do you let yourself get in this position? Like, it's frustrating to watch them let themselves dig a big hole and then have to climb their way out. But they do it, and they're calm, and they're really poised. And Marta Sneezek is a really poised guard, point guard for them, who gets people the ball. And, you know, and all of that matters, and that experience matters when you get to this point in the season, because if you come out and you get into a big hole early, you can't freak out about it or you're done. Right. And, and they don't do that. And they don't. You know? And what, what makes Texas Stanford, to my mind, probably the best matchup of the Sweet 16 is that they're going up against a Texas team that mirrors that in so many ways. When you look at Brooke McCarty and what right. she's able to do, Texas, how many times this year has been behind in the fourth and executed? I, I marvel at what Karen Aston has done there time after time after time all season long and making sure that they execute in the half court in the fourth quarter. So how that I expect that game to go down to the final couple of possessions and it will be fascinating to see. I think you're right. Texas probably has more weapons to be able to make those baskets uh, count down the stretch, but I'm curious to see it, as, and I'm sure you are as well. Let's take a bigger picture view of this then. Is there one team remaining that you think is the best bet to make it to the Final Four? And assuming that you share it with me and that it's Washington, is there a second team that you think is second likeliest to make it to the Final Four out of the Pac-12? Yeah, I think Washington's my first choice. Um, I'm going to say Stanford. Mm-hmm. And just because of the way things line up. Um, you know, I mean, so if they can get what I think is going to be a really hard-fought win over Texas, you know, I don't know, Notre Dame, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Those, you know, those ACL injuries, they break hearts in women's basketball every single year, and now Notre Dame's got to pick themselves up, obviously, and they've done it before. But and maybe that you know and maybe we're going to underestimate them a little. But Brianna Turner was a big part of what they did, mm-hmm. and they struggled when they didn't have her on the floor after she got hurt the other night. And they're going to have to regroup. And so, but I think that puts a vulnerability into Notre Dame that wasn't maybe wasn't there before. I, I mean, um, that that's a know, potential problem against Ohio State too. Yeah, I think so too. And I just think that there's a. Um, <clears throat> so I mean, I think that. Given the way things line up, I would give Stanford the second-best shot at getting back to the Final Four. Very interesting. Well, it's going to be such a treat coming up this weekend. And so 
what do we have coming up from you? As, as you know, I, I am a huge fan of your work and send it out every chance I can via social media. But tell Which me, I appreciate. Oh, please, it, it, it's um, my pleasure. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go. Um, I'm gonna be in Stockton, and I'm gonna put one last awesome. party note in as we were talking about the committee and choices and things. Please, I don't understand for the life of me why Stanford isn't in Stockton. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. Oregon State was going to have to get on a plane no matter what. They were going to travel no matter what. Stanford didn't get to host. You had to take. They had to go to Manhattan, Kansas, and play their first two rounds. Mm-hmm. And you know, good on them that they managed to get themselves through it. It wasn't easy. Certainly not the first game, but they got themselves through it. But from a standpoint of ticket sales, from a standpoint, Beaver Nation obviously will get themselves to Stockton from Corvallis. It's a long ride. My son goes to college up there. I can tell you how long a ride it is. <laughs> But um, I, but I don't get it. Like that really baffled me in terms of being able to really bring support. You've got now Quinnipiac, Florida State, and South Carolina coming to Stockton, California, and Oregon State. And I just, I don't get it because it seems to me that that would have been an easy swap to do, and it would have been a little bit of a nod to Stanford to say, all right, you didn't get to host, but we're going to bring you back and let you play 90 miles from home in the regional. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And get fans there, and whatever, and like, I don't get it. I didn't get it. No, no, I, I didn't either, and uh, through no fault of their own, not getting to host. So, uh, hopefully, I, I think there needs to be a better fix to that issue next time around, than just having a seven seed get to host. That didn't sit right, I think, with a lot of people, myself included, that Kansas State is a seven got to host, but for instance, Ohio State, who I thought should have been, quite frankly, a top four seed, didn't get to host. It didn't make a lot of sense to me, and even by seedings, didn't either. Well, Michelle Smith... Well, I mean, yeah, there's I'm two sorry, ways to argue that, but... <laughs> yes. Fair no, enough. I, was say, I think there's two no. ways to argue that, because you're not going to, you know, but you also don't want to put a team like Stanford in a position to have to go win at Ohio State. Right. Very true. You know, but, you don't want to, I mean, you know, you want to, you want to, you know, you can either choose who's going to get to host and lose Stanford on merit, or you're going to say, what's most fair to Stanford? And not that going to Manhattan wasn't hard enough, but to ask them to go to Ohio State and win as a top two seed would have been, I think, would have probably felt way more punitive than what they ended up having to do. That is fair. But so then the question becomes, all right, look, this was a situation that wasn't fair to Stanford. Kansas State was given an advantage that neither Stanford nor Ohio State had, even though both of them had arguably better seasons. So it, it's it, sure. it's not, this isn't an easy one. This isn't like Oregon yeah. shouldn't have been a 10. Uh, this was right. this was one, I, I don't envy the committee having to figure it out, but geez, I, I don't know what the right answer was. This one didn't feel like it to me. Did it feel like it to you? Um, I mean, ultimately, Kansas State didn't take advantage of the opportunity they were handed, so it worked out. <laughs> you know, I mean, and maybe that's, and that maybe, you know, I don't know, not that the the committee would be counting on that, right. but maybe that's just, all right, Kansas State, here's an opportunity, make of it or don't, and, but this is how it had to go. I don't know. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think it was a tough situation. It was disappointing for, you know, it was disappointing, but ultimately, I don't think it made that big of a difference. As Tara would tell you, they barely got out of the second round at home last year against South Dakota State. Barely. So, maybe being on the road and hunkering down and being together when you've had a team that's played well on the road all year is not such a bad thing. Yes, if if any team was prepared to do it, it was Stanford. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, Well, Michelle Smith, who you can follow and must follow, if for some reason you're not, I 
don't even imagine what's wrong with you. But follow her on at MatchSmith413 on Twitter. Uh, and, Michelle, I can't wait to talk to you again, and I, I'm sure we'll meet up in uh, Dallas. Really looking forward to it. I will see you in Dallas. Thank you, thank you. Sounds great. Safe travels. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. We'll be back with significantly more coverage over the next week as well, uh, supersizing it for you, heading into the Final Four in Dallas next week. Uh, I'm Howard Meddell, wishing you a wonderful day.